this point, we're going to continue our worship with the first scripture reading from Exodus 2, 1 through 10. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and plastered it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the river banks. Her sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her attendants walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid to bring it to her. When she opened it, she saw the child. He was crying, and she took pity on him. This must be one of the Hebrews' children, she said. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse it for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed it. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she took him as her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's always nice to hear from our youth, from our children. Thank you, Katie. I don't know where you are, but thank you. Oh, thank you. Appreciate it. All right, so our second scripture reading today is a continuation of what we were just reading. This is Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 to 15a. One day after Moses had grown up, as he went out to his people and saw their forced labor, he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his kinsfolk. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, he saw two Hebrews fighting, and he said to the one who was in the wrong, Why do you strike your fellow Hebrew? And he answered, Who made you a ruler or judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's good to see you all here today. Thank you for coming out. Again, I'm really glad that we have the opportunity to be together this morning and to have the opportunity to just spend some time with each other. Um, during this fall, we're going to be doing a sermon series, as I told you if you were here last week or you were watching online. It's called Exodus, Discovering Our Promised Land. And the reason why we're looking at the book of Exodus is because it speaks to our present circumstances in a very beautiful way. It really helps us to, I think, come to terms with what it is that we're dealing with. The stories in Exodus really speak to an opportunity for us to talk about how we are connected as individuals, as a church, and as a larger community. And so the goal of this series is for us to take time to talk about the new and bold direction we need to be taking as Christians if we want to discover our promised land and remain relevant in the 21st century. 
So today, if you don't mind, I know that it's probably hard for you all to see. You know, we tried to bump the, the, uh, the brightness up on this as much as we can. And again, if you would like to follow along, you can on your smartphones. This is the one time I will say it's okay for you to be on your cell phones during my sermon. But if you wanted to, you can follow along. If you want to go to the live stream page, you can see it as we go. And we'll do this week to week. Um, anybody watching online, you'll see it automatically. So I want to go to this first the scripture, I want to dive into it, and I actually want to look at this first line that we talked about, because it's very easy. You probably didn't even notice it as we went through it, but I want to look at it again. And basically it says, a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. Now, this might seem kind of inconsequential. It may seem like it means really nothing to what we're talking about today, but it actually has a really big importance. The fact that Moses, who is, of course, who we're talking about through most of this, is associated with the Levites. And this is going to be really important, not just for what we're talking about in Exodus, but for the rest of the Torah. Now, if we fast forward, I'm going to explain to you why it matters. So uh, if we fast forward, the Hebrew people, they get out of Egypt. I hope I didn't give anything away, right? Like, they actually do make it out, okay? So they make it out of Egypt, and they end up going into the Holy Land. And when they get there, there are 12 tribes, okay? 12 is a big number in all this, just remember that. The 12 tribes, they divvy up the land according to the 12 tribes. But the one tribe that doesn't get any land, they are the Levites. And the reason why is because the Levites are the priests. They're like TC and myself. They were the ones who were there to perform all of the religious ceremonies for them. They would take the sacrifices. Let's say you all wanted to be forgiven. At that time, if you want to be forgiven, you would have to bring a sacrifice, and the priest would sacrifice it on the altar, and then you would be forgiven of your sin. Now, the reason why the Levites didn't have a plot of land is because they didn't need to grow anything. It was a twofer. By you bringing the sacrifice, you got forgiven, and then we got to eat. And so I was thinking that we should reinstitute this. Not that I want you to bring animals for us to sacrifice, but we should definitely do like buffet here. You all can bring it up. And, you know, we have a little buffet spread every Sunday. TC was telling me he just wants vegetables, though. No meat for him. Okay, just straight vegetables all the time. So what happens is Moses, he ends up prefiguring this idea that the Levites that they're going to be priests. Because if you remember, Moses, he gets the Ten Commandments, and he also ends up going and getting the rest of the Torah law. And so that little line, even though we don't really think of it much, that line is actually a line that tells us a lot about who Moses is going to be in the future. So this story that we read this morning is about Moses' birth. And if we're going to talk about Moses' birth, we have to talk about what we discussed last week. Because last week, we discussed how Pharaoh, if you remember, he institutes a death protocol on all Hebrew babies, baby boys, and says that if you're a baby boy, that you are going to be basically dumped into the river Nile. So this, of course, applies to Moses in his particular situation. Now, Moses' mother, she gives birth to him. She tries to hide him for like three months, and then she's like, I can't do this anymore. So she puts him into a basket that can float and sends him down the Nile. Now, I don't mean to burst your bubble here, but there are lots of stories in Egypt of babies getting put in baskets, getting sent down the Nile. That's not unique to the Hebrew Scriptures. What is unique is this motif of important people when they are supposed to be born, almost not being born. Either the wife is barren, she can't give birth, or there's something threatening to kill the child. And in every single one of those circumstances, someone or something 
swoops in to save the day. And in this particular instance, it happens to be someone from the royal family. As you heard TC talk about, Pharaoh's daughter, she is bathing in the Nile and she sees Moses float by. And she says, oh, this must want to be one of these little Hebrew baby boys. But she doesn't follow her father's orders. She decides that what she's going to do is she's going to adopt the child. So she tells her servant to go find a Hebrew wet nurse. And the wet nurse goes off to find, uh, or the servant goes off to find a wet nurse and ends up finding Moses' mother. And so in a weird twist of fate, they're kind of reunited with each other. And she's allowed to take care of him until he comes of age, which would have been around 11 or 12 years old. So at 11 or 12, that's when Moses goes and starts living in the royal household. And it's there that he would receive the name Moses. Now, in the scripture, it says that it means to pull out. Truthfully, the name Moses comes from the Egyptian root mez, which means son. So that's really all it comes from. That's what Moses means. It just means son. Now, we are told very little about Moses. We are told very little about his childhood, how he grows up. We don't really know much about it. We don't know if he knew that his mother was his mother. We don't know if his father ever came into play. All we know for sure is that he feels a deep affinity, a deep kinship for the Hebrew people. And we know this because once he's grown up, he walks out and he sees an Egyptian slave driver beating one of the Hebrew slaves. And he looks around and he decides, you know what, I'm going to kill this guy. And he murders the slave driver and he buries him in the sand. You with me so far? You haven't zoned out yet? All right, good. Well, if you could, I can't tell, because with everything here, the glasses, you could be asleep for all I know. So I want us to take some special time to talk about this particular aspect of the story, when he murders his Hebrew slave driver, because this opens up a whole new world in terms of what's happening in the story, and it means a lot for what's going on. So at this point in the story, what we understand is that Moses is really a part of two different worlds. He is of Hebrew bloodline, but at the same time, he is also somebody who is very enmeshed in Egyptian culture. And the interesting thing about it is because he grows up in the royal household, he's not like the other Hebrews. He's not subjected to the same harsh labor. And so he's kind of divorced from their suffering. He doesn't really understand it. He deals with it kind of from afar. And yet, there is clearly a lot of anger that he feels towards the Egyptians in terms of how they are treating the Hebrew people. Because, let's be honest, if he's from the royal household and he goes out and he sees an Egyptian slave driver, he could just say, hey, stop beating that guy. And the guy would have had to listen to him. Would have had to. Would have had no choice because he's from the royal household. But instead, Moses decides to murder him, which tells you that there's a lot of deep-seated rage right underneath the surface. And this is a really important turning point in the story because this is the first time that Moses really claims his Hebrew heritage, and he does so in a big way. He does it by defending his people from the oppressor. He's essentially rejecting his Egyptian heritage, and he's saying, I stand with the Hebrew people. Now, a little bit later on, he's walking around again, and he sees two Hebrew men fighting each other. And those two Hebrew men, he stops them. He says, look, what are you guys doing? You two are brothers. And they look up at him, and they say to him, hey, who appointed you as judge over us? Now, this is really important here because 
when he says, who, are you, who made you ruler and judge, that's foreshadowing later on when he will be made ruler and judge over them by God at a later point in time. But at this point in the story, when they see him, what do they end up doing? They do not accept him as one of their own. They reject him as being different. They see him as other. And then they say to him, do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? This is when he's like, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. So he decides, you know what, I need to get out of Dodge. Because if he doesn't, then Pharaoh's going to figure out where he is. And he's going to arrest him and have him executed. And so what's important to understand here is that Moses has been rejected by both of his people at this point. He's been rejected by the Hebrews because he hasn't really suffered alongside them. And he's also been rejected by the Egyptians because he's killed one of their own. And so Moses is now a man of no people. And he flees to the desert. And the desert in the Bible is a symbol for people who are lost and displaced. And so Moses, a man of no people, ends up in no man's land. Now, you with me so far? You still good? You haven't fallen asleep too much? Okay. So... If you were an ancient person hearing this story, you would have felt that this story was a tragedy. Because unlike today, where we want to get our kids out of the house, we're like, go, leave. Like, please, get out of the house and do whatever you're going to do. Get away from us, right? That's how we think. And we're like, you can go halfway across the world. It's fine. Back then, you did not want that to happen. It was like a death sentence, okay? Because at that point in time, it was very much based on a tribal culture. So your tribe, your bloodline, your people were your everything. And you needed them to survive. You have to remember, it's not like today. Living in the world back then, it was a very violent and unpredictable place. Your tribe provided you with security and safety. They provided you with resources, with food and housing. And most importantly, they provided you with community. And when you got cut off from all of that, it was literally like you were dead. Because it's not like you could just go out and be like, oh, I'm going to go join another tribe. They didn't like that. It's, they were very suspicious of outsiders. Just imagine for a moment, right? Those of you who are Cubs fans. Who's a Cubs fan here? Okay, we've got a lot of Cubs fans, right? So imagine if somebody from the Cardinals came up to you and was like, you know what? I think I'm going to be a Cubs fan now. You'd be like, no, I don't think so. You're trying to undermine, right, my team. Is that what you're trying to do? You're trying to step in, undermine my people? People are very suspicious, right? And so you had to prove yourself. You had to prove that you were worthy of their time. And even then, they often wouldn't accept you in. And so tribalism is very much a part of our DNA. It's part of who we are. It's our way of surviving in the world. And it's natural for us to want to be around our people. It's natural for us to want to be around people who think and act like us. And the fact is, even though we no longer live in tribes today, tribalism still very much dictates how we live our lives. It's very much how our mind operates in the world. And I want to give you a story about this, an example of this in my own life. So I've told you all in the past, for those of you who've been here, if you're newer, you wouldn't know, but uh, I went to Rice University, which is in Houston, Texas, for my undergraduate degree. And I went there on a swimming scholarship. And my swim coach was very specific with us. He said, look, if you're going to be on this swim team, you have to go out and support other athletes. You have to go to their sporting events. You can't just do swimming. And so Rice had a football team, still does. They're not very good. Uh, and the year I was there was 1998. That was our freshman year. And he said, look, we're going to go and we're going to support the Rice football team. They are playing the University of Texas. 
Now, if you know anything about UT, they have a really good football team. They're, they're like really good. So my coach, he calls up the UT coach and says, hey, can we come up and practice with you guys in the morning? And then what we're going to do is we're going to go see the football game that evening. And so we drive up to Austin and we practice with the UT swim team. And by the way, that was amazing. That was the first time I had practiced with anybody outside of Rice. And those guys, so I was a sprinter. I would do 50 free, which is the shortest event you can do, right? Because that's great just to get out as quick as you can. I was there. Those guys, when they were sprinting, they were doing practices. They were practicing at times faster than my fastest race time ever. So they, the fastest time I had ever gone, they were doing that on repetitions. So that showed me just how bad I was at swimming. I thought I was hot stuff. I was not. So we finished practice, and we go to the UT game. Now, I had never been to anything like this in my life before. You can maybe see it on the screen. I know it's really hard to see out here. This is why having it on the phones helps. But this is the stadium that we went to. I had never been to anything like this in my life. It is enormous. It's huge. And you walk in, and everybody's wearing that UT orange. And this is what I'm wearing. I literally still have it to this day. I'm wearing this. <laughs> These are my rice swimming shorts. This is what, and you can see it, you can barely see it. This is from, I was 18, I'm wearing these things, and I have my rice shirt on, so clearly I stick out, right? So we're walking around the stadium, and we're trying to find this small student section for the opposing team. They always have this little student section you can sit in, and we just can't find it. And eventually, as we're wandering through the crowd, like we, we're starting to go up and down aisles, and people are starting to yell, like, inserts and slurs at us. Like, it's, it's like, it's getting intense. People are pushing me in the aisle, like, as I'm walking by. And finally, we come to this guy, and this guy says, oh, you can sit next to us. It's, a, it's an unmarked section. It's just like bleachers. And I thought, finally, somebody who's kind and nice. And we get in, and we sit next to him, and he goes, he goes normally, I wouldn't let anybody from the opposing team anywhere near me. But my son went to Rice, so... You can sit next to me. Now, I have to admit to you that I was kind of shocked by this. Because the only reason this guy was showing me any kindness at all is because his son went to Rice. And I didn't understand this. This didn't compute to me. Because for me, I have to just, like you all know, like I, I, I love to do sports. Like I, I love swimming. I love to lift weights. I run. I like to do the sports. I'm not so much of a sports consumer. I don't have teams or things like that. So it was really hard for me to understand and to see, like, why would this entire stadium full of people treat me with such animosity simply because I'm from the opposing team? It's not like we were any competition for them. Like, I told you, Rice football was horrible. That was 1998. Do you all remember Ricky Williams? Ricky Williams, who played for the NFL? He was on UT at that point. He scored like four touchdowns on us. It was a blowout. It wasn't even close. And yet, because we were from the opposing team, we were the enemy. Now this is tribalism. And it doesn't just happen in sports. It happens in all kinds of different aspects of our lives. It happens with our political parties. It happens with race and ethnicity. It happens with education and socioeconomics. Happens in all these different areas, and in particular, it happens in religion. So what are you? Are you Jewish? Are you Christian? Are you Muslim? 
Oh, you're Christian. Okay. What kind of Christian are you? Are you evangelical? Are you fundamentalist? Are you Pentecostal? Are you Methodist? Baptist? Lutheran? Oh, you're Presbyterian? Woo! Good. Okay. Wait, what kind of Presbyterian are you? Are you the kind of Presbyterian that thinks men are superior to women and that gays are going to hell? Or are you the kind of Presbyterian that ordains women and is willing to marry gays? Big difference between those two. Tribalism. Who are my people? And that is the question that we need to be asking here at First Pres as we think about our future. Who are our people? What does our community look like? Now, classically speaking, the community here at First Pres has been comprised predominantly of white, middle, and upper middle class individuals. And the question I pose to you today is, do you want that to change? Do you want that to be different? Do you want to broaden our horizons? And if so, what does that look like? Because the truth is, churches are some of the most tribalistic places you will ever find. The moment you walk into a church, you can tell almost instantaneously whether or not you belong. It's right there. It's a culture. It's an ethos. You can feel it in the air the moment you walk in. Do I belong here? Now, churches ostensibly are supposed to be a place where anybody can walk in from any background and feel welcome. But that is not the way it actually works. The way it actually works is you walk in and you figure out whether or not you belong. And the people who feel like they belong are the people who match the tribal culture of the church. And so even though we want to be welcoming, everybody wants to be welcoming, that's not the way it actually happens. And so if you want to break that down, you have to be really, really trying to make it, make it happen. It has to be something that you are working towards. Because if you don't do that, then the tribal culture is going to remain. You have to shake people out of that tribal mentality. So let's take, for instance, let's say that we wanted to have a more diverse congregation. And diversity can be a lot of different things. It can be racial and ethnic. It can be socioeconomic. It can be educational. It can be cultural. All those things. If you want to do that, what you have to do is you have to break people out of that tribal mentality. And you have to do that because what you don't want is for a stranger to walk into the church and to feel like, Moses felt when those two men were rejecting him. They said, hey, you're not one of us. Get out. Get away from us. That is not what you want. Am I right? That's not what we want. So if we're going to break that down, I'm going to tell you how I think we have to do that. I think we have to do that by all coming together and we all have to have the same values, the same values that are the closest to our hearts. So the question is, what are those values? So if we all share the same values, then I think we can break it down. So I will tell you what I think the most important values are for this community, or what I hope the most important things are. And it's what we say at the end of every service. What do we say? We say, choose love, be the light, change the world, right? We say that at the end of every service. Now, the values within that statement of choose love, be the light, change the world, those values can be inter interpreted in lots of different ways by lots of different people. Let me give you an example. So some of you here choose love. Choose love is a value, is it not? Now, you can interpret that a lot of different ways. So some of you here choose love, and you think to yourself, okay, well, i got to choose love. So I'm going to choose to love 
my family and friends, my people who are closest to me. That's one way to interpret it, that that's how you're going to choose to love. Others of you, you're like, well, I'm in a church, so choose love means i got to choose to love God, right? Understandable. That makes sense as well. But for me, when I was helping to come up with this idea, this statement, I was thinking of choosing to love your neighbor. Not that I wasn't thinking of you shouldn't love your family and your friends or God, but at the top of that heap, I was thinking of your neighbor, particularly your neighbor who is cast aside and feels as though they are less than, particularly the neighbor who is like Moses and has no tribe to call their own. Now, why does this matter? Why does it make a difference? Well, you can certainly choose love, be the light, change the world to your family and friends. There's nothing wrong with that, and you can do a lot of good with that. You can choose love, be the light, change the world for God and when you're loving God. However, when you choose love, be the light, change the world, when your top value is to love your neighbor, particularly your neighbors who are different from you and have no tribe, that, my friends, is a game changer. Because when you are intentional about loving people who are from markedly different backgrounds from you, who are different from you, who do not share the same life experience of you, that is how you shift the world in a positive direction. Because when you get to know those people, when you get to know them and they don't share what you have in common, you break the tribalism down because you have to get outside your comfort zone. Is it hard? Oh, yes, it is hard. It is difficult. It is not natural. But when you do it, it breaks the tribalism and it opens everything up. Think about it. If every single person listening online and out here in this parking lot, if every single one of you made your top value to love your neighbors who are different from you, think about how that could change this church. How much more welcoming would we be if every single person here, that was their top value, it's what you, it's what you strove for every single week. That would break down the tribal culture of our church and it would make diversity a possibility here. Now, some of you, might be sitting there saying, Alex, I don't really feel like we have that much of a tribal culture. We do. It's just a part of every church. It's natural because we're human beings. And the truth is, there's never been a better time for us to embrace this value. And so, we are all living in a time right now with coronavirus. And if there's one positive that has come out of all of this, it has shown us that we are all the same in many ways. So, every single person here is wearing a mask, right? Every single person here feels stressed out and compromised, I assume. Every single person here feels that they don't have access to community or connection. And so what is happening is it's showing us that we are all really walking down the same path, that we are all in the same place. And the fact is, is that we all are part of one tribe, the human tribe. And so my hope and my prayer for you today is that you might think about what is my most important value? What is my top value and priority? And I hope that you will make it loving your neighbors who are different from you, loving your neighbors who do not have a tribe, loving your neighbors who feel cast aside and have no people to call their own. Because if we can be that for them, if somebody comes here and they feel that they can be a part, that they can be welcomed in, my goodness, could that make a difference in this world? Let us strive together to be the people who are welcoming of anyone who walks through our doors, anyone who sits in our parking lot, anyone who you meet, because if they are with us and they feel that they are a part of our family, then we truly will do Jesus' job of creating God's kingdom here on earth. Amen.